Hello everybody and welcome back to the Jack Throwful Show. We are back in the studio for episode 17 with so much to get into from all across the racing world. So let's get started. It is Formula One race week. Finally, after a long winter break, it's time to get back into the top class of global motorsport racing all around the world with these brilliant new 2022 Formula One cars. We've had now two testing sessions, one in Bahrain and one in Barcelona, where the teams have been really trying to dial in their setups, their upgrades and their engine components, as well as the chassis and the aero to really tackle these new regulations and to make sure that they can really maximise their opportunities in this grand uncertainty we're experiencing in Formula One. The unpredictability and the uncertainty and the jeopardy is really what these cars are trying to bring, where the running order of the grid is so much closer it becomes much more high pressure on the teams that are leading to maximise the opportunities they have because they know the rest of the grid are going to be coming up and chasing them. There isn't going to be that gap between the top of the field and the bottom of the field like we saw maybe last year with the Red Bull and the Mercedes cars lapping everyone else, or previously where we've seen Mercedes and Ferrari, or just Mercedes really, take that crown as the lead car that is just such a step above the rest of the field. And to some extent, it can be hard to really analyse the results from a testing session because you never have a perfectly clear picture of what the teams are trying to do. Things like tyre wear and fuel loads and overall testing strategy and engine modes can really affect the days you're getting. And it makes it quite hard to judge off of the timings. It's a very kind of tempting habit to just look at a timesheet and point at the top and say, oh, well, they're probably in the best position. But we know from previous years that testing is kind of all about sandbagging. And if you are the top team, especially if you're someone like Mercedes, you don't always want to put out the best picture in testing because there might be something you're hiding in your car or something you've got upcoming that you're going to release later on in the season that would be so dominant or such a big gap to the rest of the field that the FIA might just ban it because they have a history of, you know, any kind of upgrade that even if it is legal sometimes, if it really ruins the sport and puts a Mercedes car a second a lap faster than anyone else. They kind of have a responsibility to the sport a little bit to ban it and, and even it up. Obviously, that's quite an extreme perspective. And that philosophy of trying to keep the sport close does have conflicts of interest at times where how is it really fair to punish a team that succeeded in finding a gap in the regulations by outlawing it when really that's kind of the whole point? I mean, there's kind of a, a two way battle there. And I think especially in an era like this one where we have these new cars coming up and so many different philosophies, so many different approaches to these new cars. The challenge faced by the regulators is really tricky because obviously the cars are so varied and I think it's really exceeded the predictions of the regulators when they've kind of looked to see how different the cars are across the paddock. We have, of course, the Mercedes car, you know, doesn't have a side pod or at least the one they brought to the Bahrain test had a sort of a wing, like an upside down aeroplane wing near the driver cockpit and then the cooling system was all very neatly packaged into the rear of the car whole setup there with the powertrain and the gearbox was all really neatly packaged in there and apparently the cooling that mercedes have achieved is an incredibly efficient internal package there so they're able to really scale down a lot of the rear of that car really to improve drag i suppose and solve the problem that other teams are solving with lots of big wide side pods and big air vents mercedes have found another solution to that kind of internal cooling issue there so if that solution works, then it's, you know, a massive step for them and a real advantage of this efficiency they've found. The Mercedes cars do have quite a big budget, so it can obviously be easy to point out that they're spending the most, they're paying to have the best engineers, the best wind tunnel. But at the same time, one of the things that was brought in by this regulation package was an incentive that the top finishing team in the championship from the previous year had the least wind tunnel time. So there was a kind of a ranking, a little bit like how you know, in the NFL draft, if you finish last one year, you get the top first round pick. So it's to kind of balance up the field a little bit where you have to appreciate for the good of the sport, the teams that are performing poorly in the long run, it helps the sport and it helps the budget of the top teams realistically to be competing in a vibrant and a dynamic competitive Formula One series. So the teams at the bottom of the paddock, the teams that are struggling, Ergo, Haas, kind of Alfa Romeo, uh, and Williams really were the last three from the championship last year. Those guys get more time in the wind tunnel and they get a little bit of extra time to perfect their car. And I think Haas have really utilized that. You know, there was a little bit of a development freeze on these cars when they got pushed back a year. So it's not really fair to say that Haas have been working on the car for longer than anyone else, but it's clear that their strategy in terms of resource allocation was to devote a lot more time to this year's car than the 2021 car. And it seems like that's paying off. The perception was, especially in Barcelona at least, 
Haas had come with a much more prepared package and a much more predictable car. Of course, that gets thrown up in the air a little bit when you consider the arrival of Kevin Magnussen and you look at how he's really going to change the running order of that team. Now we have a proper yardstick for Mick Schumacher, a proper test for him to be measured up against. I mean, if Kevin Magnussen loses to Mick Schumacher in the same car, it's going to ask some real questions about his future in the international driving market because as much as Mick is a real great talent, we saw him be fought in Formula 2 by Callum Eilat and have a pretty one-to-one fair fight there where it didn't really seem like any of them was clearly above the rest of the field. It definitely seems like Mick Schumacher as a junior driver is bringing with him that same kind of hype and credibility and winning success that Lando Norris and Alex Albon, George Russell, Charles Leclerc all had when they graduated from FIA Formula 2. But it's been really hard once he got to Formula 1 to show that he's able to stand up to the real great drivers in the sport and be worthy of one of those 20 seats. I mean, there's only 20 Formula 1 drivers in the world at one any given time, so if you're going to prove that you should be one of them and you're going to prove you deserve it beyond your surname, you deserve it beyond your sponsor budget and your attractiveness in marketing, having a teammate like Kevin Magnussen is the perfect opportunity to do that. And I really think Mick can take it. I think he probably will do that. I think Kevin Magnussen is a really quick driver, but he's had a lot of controversy in the past with his driving style in the fact that he's a really, really aggressive driver. He's the kind of worst part of Max Verstappen. There's a brutality and a hard racing edge to Max Verstappen that is cool if you're leading from the front and you're using it to win. But for Kevin Magnussen, if he's to adopt the kind of downsides of that style and the frequentness of the incidents, but he's only fighting for P17, P16 in a 2019 Haas that isn't anywhere near the top of the grid, it's quite hard to perceive that as interesting or valuable or a real credible racing style. So maybe Schumacher could demonstrate where Magnussen's going wrong with that. Or maybe Magnussen is going to kind of appreciate how his style needs to change if he's going to be successful in this new era of Formula One. I think that's going to be a really big problem for him when you're looking at how to drive these new cars. He might be brilliant at it. It might really suit his driving style. We know that the Haas engineers from the kind of Netflix series have really struggled to find a balance between getting both drivers to be able to drive the car. And whether it was purely just out of a better driving skill that Mick Schumacher felt much more comfortable with the 2021 Haas car than Nikita Mazepin did, it's highly possible that that is the answer. But it is clear that Mazepin wasn't comfortable in the car and maybe that's a kind of two-way problem between him as a driver and the engineers. It seems unfair to blame it all on Mazepin because you meant to have these incredibly skilled engineers in Formula One and if they can't find a way in a 22 race season to find a car that fits Mazepin, where he's really able to at least show some of the quality and some of the skill that he really did demonstrate in Formula 2 on a few occasions. You've got to ask some questions there of the Haas engineers, but we'll wait and see how Kevin Magnussen plays a role in that team. I think in terms of other notes from the Bahrain test, I think the difference between the cars was really key. As I mentioned earlier, it's something that F1 Corporate have spoken about that the difference between the cars really highlights the brilliant, brilliant dynamic we have in Formula 1 between these teams and that they're looking to every single avenue to try and find something competitive and to try and find a way to gain up on another. So in some ways, it's not that surprising that we're seeing 10 different teams with 10 very different cars because they're not going to want to be seen copying one another unless you're a kind of racing point style uh, engineer. It's rare that you're going to be seen trying to copy another team when you're looking into this new regulation era because you'll want your car to be faster than them. Obviously, after the first few races, I think the copying will come into play a little bit more once the grid figures out whose package is working the best. We'll see some very quick changes and quick upgrades made once we start to understand the best way to use these regulations and attract the variable track setup we have this year in Formula 1. With such a long calendar this year, it's going to be quite hard for the teams to establish which kind of car concept is working the best. The Bahrain track gives you quite a lot of data because it has a really great mix of high speed, slow speed corners. It's got three DRS zones, so you're going to be able to use kind of low drag setup on the straights. And it does strike that balance of forcing you to run a relatively low downforce car to maximize the benefits on those three DRS zones. Especially in testing, we've seen going down into turn nine, which is the slowest corner on the track. It's a downhill left-hand braking zone, kind of a double apex, and it really sucks you in to brake as late as possible and try and really maximize your entry speed there. But in testing, we saw a lot of lockups into that corner, and that seems to be a point where the brakes are really tested and the tires can start overheating if you're not careful. 
a bad exit out of that corner is going to compromise your entire run down the next straight. So we might see a lot of overtakes into turn 10 this year in Bahrain because of that difference in the braking zone and the new front brakes the teams will have. Whether they're able to maximise opportunity in that context and whether we're going to see that braking zone be particularly key to the race remains to be seen. But I think it could definitely, definitely play a role. We saw last year in Bahrain, of course, an incredible, incredible season opener where Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen went toe-to-toe -to -toe the entire race. We really got a taste of everything at the Bahrain Grand Prix at the start of the 2021 season because that fight between Max Verstappen and Lewis Hamilton was incredibly engaging the entire race. Yuki Tsunoda made a brilliant debut. Now, he really benefited from having that testing time that was at the same track the season opener was going to be at. So we might see a similar effect for Guan Yu Zhou this year, where having that three days of intensive testing at the Bahrain track and then having the season opener at that same Bahrain track are going to enable him to kind of perfect that setup and really get used to smashing out repetitive, consistent, clean laps around the same circuit. The conditions should be relatively predictable. Of course, the sand in Bahrain and the wind can really throw up some uh, mixed conditions and change the tyre wear quite a lot. But of course, the overall heat and the weather is, is relatively predictable. I think we'll find out a lot, of course, from the Friday practice sessions, the kind of cars that people really show up with there and the differences between what cars people bring on Friday and what they brought in the Bahrain testing session last weekend. It's really going to show how these teams have use testing and what they've gained out of it. It's really key to note the importance that reliability is going to play this year with a year that's going to bring so many new parts, so many upgrades and so many new interpretations of the regulations. For the teams to be able to deliver a consistent package that is going to finish every race and is going to maximise points when they're available, it's going to be really, really key because we've seen a lot of times teams not be able to do that, you know? A team is leading the race and then suddenly their engine blows up or they lose drive from the powertrain. You know, so many things can go wrong with these cars as we're looking into the new era of regulations. It's going to be really key to maximize the running time, you know, to not have practice sessions go awry because a gearbox has failed or to not have your drivers crash as well. Of course, that's a reliability factor. You know, the consistency of a driver to keep the car on track. In a way, that's reliability. It's predictability. It's consistent performance. And it's something that in some sense doesn't really require talent so much as it does awareness and detail-oriented mindset. There's a lot of management buzzwords you can use there, but I think at least in that situation, they, they kind of do apply because it's really key that you check over every little detail on the car and you make sure that all the things you can protect from going wrong are protected. We saw the worst side of that, or at least the most frustrating side of that, at the Monaco Grand Prix last year with Charles Leclerc's pole position and then crash and retirement on the formation lap. It was Ferrari chiefly not taking a risk to get that five-place grid penalty for swapping out the gearbox and wanting to trying to take the risk that the reliability of the gearbox would stand up to the test of the crash and stay together. But ultimately, that confidence in the reliability of the car was unfounded and we saw the gearbox fail on the formation lap. So maybe they'll learn some lessons from that. I think speaking of Ferrari, we should touch on how everyone's kind of put them forward as, as the front runners at the moment, at least from testing. They came with a really cool car and they came with a car that looked really, really well designed. It wasn't anything too different from what the regulators were expecting. I think it was more conformative to that than uh, the Mercedes car was. But it looked fast and ultimately it looked reliable. And it seems like with their driver pairing, if they're able to deliver a package that is within, you know, a tenth, tenth and a half of whatever the top team is, and at least is going to put them in on a fair percentage of tracks, a potential pole position or a potential race winning position. The driver pairing between Charles Leclerc and Carlos Sainz seems to really maximise everything you need with the youthfulness, the kind of daredevil attitude, the risk taking of both of them really as, as relatively young drivers. But also that race winning experience with Charles Leclerc, he knows how to dethrone a king like he did with Sebastian Vettel and he might go and do it again. We saw a hint of the battle between Max Verstappen and Charles Leclerc at the 2019 Austria Grand Prix. Very controversial move by Max Verstappen that decided the win in that race and defined his racing style, I think, to many. And that acceptability of that racing style by the stewards has been used as a kind of case example when we look to other examples of racing lines and pushing someone off the track and, and you know, aggressive driving styles. It's quite a controversial topping and it can be hard to get into when you're kind of looking to draw conclusions about 
dangerous driving and you know allegations of, of risk taking can be quite hard to have a fair conversation about but the 2019 austrian grand prix is definitely an example of how max verstappen likes to win his races by uh pushing the limits of the rules and winning i mean you really can't take that away from max he does go out there and win and he puts people in their place when they need it and he knows how to drive the car on the limit but if you can put a Charles Leclerc or you can put a Carlos Sainz up against that in a fast Ferrari, we'll see where the season takes us, but it could be another brilliant one. We were very, very lucky in 2021 to the Formula One season we were treated with. A championship decided on the last lap of the last race of the season. Happened before in 2008 and it happened before other times in Formula One. Of course, the championship being decided at the final race is nothing new, but last lap of the final race is really something special. We can't get too greedy with it, but... We know that people have very, very short memories and we know it can be hard to really appreciate the grandeur of what an amazing season 2021 was, especially with the way it ended. But the racing action, I think this year is going to be just as good, if not better, in terms of the direct quality of the racing on track and the competitiveness between the teams, teams beyond just Mercedes and Red Bull. Hopefully Ferrari can get in the mix. Seems like McLaren are having some kind of reliability problems, both with their car and their driver, Daniel Ricciardo, who caught coronavirus this week. But if they can fix those and also compete with the Ferraris like they did last year, mix it up, give us that kind of four-team championship fight that we've been really waiting for since Mercedes joined the sport. Of course, before Mercedes, it was McLaren, Ferrari, Red Bull. Those were the kind of big three. Mercedes replaced McLaren there effectively when they came into the sport and became the leader there. And then for a couple of years, it was really just Mercedes and uh, Ferrari. Red Bull are back now. Let's get Ferrari back there and let's get McLaren back to the top two. Now we've got a world championship on our hands and now we've got one without hopefully the kind of controversy and the polarization of last year when it's just two drivers. I feel like if you introduce a bit more plurality there and a bit more of a kind of spreading of the points throughout the championship, it might be a little bit less divisive. I hope at least it'll be a little bit less divisive because sometimes it can be really, really boring to go on Twitter and hear the same things every day because you want some new drama, you want some new support. And speaking of drama, we should touch on season four of the F1 Drive to Survive Netflix series that was released last weekend. I think it was really cool to see what footage they were able to capture. They really do have some great stuff in there, and I think they kind of know it with how they littered it through the trailer and how they paced the episodes. It's not really until the end of the episode that they kind of release the amazing behind the scene footage that the series has become so well known for. A lot of it is journalistic rhetoric, a lot of it is interviews and dramatic kind of little monologues and quick cuts and, and sound effects and stuff but you need that to some extent to make f1 dramatic and i think there's a lot of diehard fans that will say oh how dare you we need to understand that this is an incredible series and the detail and the storylines are all there in the sport and they don't need to be hashed up for tv but the reality is that there's plenty of people in the world that aren't formula one fans that do not care about formula one for the tiniest bit you need to figure out a way to appeal to those fans. And of course, there's going to be some costs to doing that in the hyperbole and the polarization that the series brings about. The kind of reductionist attitude of just the drama without full fair context, you know? But it's very kind of publicized now that the series probably does more good than harm in the new popularity. I mean, we saw, you know, the 2021 US Grand Prix. We spoke to the photographer Jamie Price about that. And he told us all about what the atmosphere was like there. And to say that the Netflix show has played a minor role in that is a huge understatement. You can draw the lines very directly between the increase in that show's popularity relative to other shows on Netflix, relative not only to other sports documentaries, maybe like the uh, Michael Jordan series or Last Chance You or the uh, cheerleading one, you know, things like that. Netflix has become really, really good at these kind of short edited sports documentaries. But relative to all content on Netflix, the Formula One show stands up in, in viewing numbers. And that's really, really powerful for our sport. And we need to understand that you got to forgive a little bit of the cost sometimes and have a little fun with it. And if you know that the F1 Netflix series isn't that accurate and you don't like it and it makes you annoyed to see Verstappen cut out of everything and Hamilton always be given that fair show and have that two-handed battle between Red Bull and Mercedes be fired up like it's the most dramatic thing ever in the history of sport and it's a war between these two titanic villains. It's nothing like that, really. But it's cool to do it on a TV show and, and I don't mind it, but no one's forced to watch it. And if you are watching it and you love the series, then welcome in. Welcome to Formula One because we're lucky to have you. We're lucky to have these new fans. We have to appreciate Formula One's place among other sports in the world. 
And having new fans is never really a bad thing, but you have to introduce those fans in the right way. And we know the Netflix series can go wrong sometimes, but Formula One can go wrong sometimes. And we love the times when it goes wrong and, and crazy stuff happens. And that's what the people that watch the Netflix show want to see too. So I don't think you can be that mad at it. I kind of like the uh, season four, at least. The scene where Toto Wolf hands George Russell effectively his Mercedes contract and we see that hug and, and that handshake and the emotions from George Russell knowing that he's going to be driving against Lewis Hamilton getting that confirmed I mean that's a beautiful moment that's a guy's dreams coming true right there that's pretty cool and, and I know that the Netflix show has those downsides but capturing moments like that we saw last season uh, the phone call from Christian Horner to Sergio Perez saying you're now a Red Bull driver welcome to Red Bull that's a brilliant, brilliant moment. And to see, to have access to that, the Netflix show is kind of the only way you're going to get it because you have to make the show popular for them to justify letting the show in to that extent and giving them that behind the scenes access. You know, Netflix had that footage of George Russell getting signed, him and Toto having that conversation long before the Mercedes public announcement ever happened, but they have to sit on that. And Mercedes know that Netflix aren't going to leak it. They have that trust in Netflix as a big entity that Netflix want to kind of store up all those golden moments for their own show. Netflix has to deliver that value and capture those moments and present them in a way that's engaging to a big audience for the F1 teams to let them film that kind of thing. And I want to see that kind of stuff because I just think it's cool to have that access to understand what's really going on. But of course, the Netflix show does kind of hit both ends in that it shows you some of the really cool, amazing behind the scenes access but then it shows you some recutting of the Grand Prix that seems to be hugely distant to what actually happened. I mean, we saw the Hungarian Grand Prix in season four, but they didn't put in any of the uh, Lewis Hamilton and Fernando Alonso battle at the Hungarian Grand Prix, which was some of the best racing we've been treated to all season. I think you should show that to a Formula One fan if uh, they're going to be adopted as a new fan and love the things about the sport that are truly amazing and seeing these guys on the peak performance level. That battle in, in Hungary is a great example of that and to not put that in the show I think is a bit of a crime but the final episode the episode about Abu Dhabi and the conclusion of this incredible season I think to be honest the final episode was the best episode of the whole show they did a pretty good job I thought by capitalizing on all that drama all that controversy of the final race in a way that wasn't too far from the truth really or at least the truth we know at the moment of course the FIA investigation into that is still yet to come out but Everyone has been dying to know what happened in that race and, and what really went on. And we got a little bit of that shown there and we got the emotions from Lewis and Max after the race and the celebrations from Christian Horner. Christian was kind of the main reference for Red Bull because Max Verstappen had actively chosen to not be a part of the Netflix show because of the downsides we spoke about earlier and the hyperbole and the dramatization of it. A lot of the Red Bull story is told by Christian and of course, all of that's framed in a certain way through Christian's personality and what he's like, what he's so passionate about in the team he's built at Red Bull. We know from our interview with Jonathan what a brilliant team dynamic they've got over there. And I think that really shines through the passion that Christian has for his team and his devotion to racing performance at almost any cost. I mean, there's a little bit of that in the final episode where we look at both Mercedes and Red Bull really throwing the book at each other and finding every little way to throw the other team off their game. I love that kind of stuff. And I think Netflix did a pretty good job with, uh, with all of that in the final Abu Dhabi race. So I would highly recommend checking out the Netflix show realistically. It's better understood with that framing of what its purpose really is to the sport. And you have to know a little bit about the reality of the sport to kind of take in some of that drama in context. But I'm really excited to have some new Formula One fans on board. And I think Formula One can really benefit from new perspectives because as we've seen Many, many times in the sport, the kind of old eyes, the old way of doing things isn't always the right one. And with these new package of regulations and with the new Formula One fans from the series, we could be in for a really, really brilliant 2022. So here's to Formula One. Here's to the Bahrain Grand Prix. I know I'll be watching. And the return of Formula One also brings with it the return of Formula Two and Formula Three alongside it, because those two junior series are both traveling to the Bahrain Grand Prix alongside Formula One. And for the first time in a long time, we're going to get F1, F2 and F3 together all in the same weekend. It can be a little tricky to understand the dynamics in these junior series because the drivers change between them so much. Of course, they function chiefly as driver development platforms. There are their own championships and it is important, of course, for these drivers to take home that prize money and for these teams to compete 
just for the purpose of winning the FIA F2 Championship or the FIA Formula 3 Championship. They do serve purposes in their own rights as crowning achievements, especially for the mechanics that are really understanding these cars. There's a similar progression of junior Formula mechanics to Formula 1 mechanics. We spoke a little bit about that with Jonathan, how they like to work with teams like Carlin, and we're seeing this year the Red Bull Formula 3 champion, Dennis Hauger is now working with the Prima Formula 2 team, which is traditionally the Ferrari Academy. But a new partnership there between the Red Bull Driver Academy and the Prima Formula 2 team could be massively beneficial because the Prima cars are incredibly dominant in both Formula 2 and Formula 3. And we saw Hauger win the Formula 3 championship last year in a Prima car. So if he can do that again, take the Formula 2 championship this year, a little bit like our man Oscar Piastri, who will be driving in Formula 1 soon enough. Winning both of those championships is a massively powerful statement and a lot of pressure is going to be on Dennis Hauger this year. I think the achievements of Oscar Piastri are going to put pressure on all these junior drivers to show that, look, if Oscar Piastri can win back-to-back championships like that, why can't you do it? If he can do it and he's a better driver than you, well, then we'll just get him, you know? Why can your resume now stand up to the incredible, incredible achievements of a lot of the junior class field If you're not coming in the top three of Formula 3 or the top three of Formula 2, it's almost looked at as a loss. And it's not really a credit to your driver standing that you finished in the top 10 of Formula 2. I mean, like it's not going to get you anything directly beyond what your sponsor would be already willing to pay for no matter where you finished, right? Like no one's hiring the guy that finished eighth in Formula 2 to get graduated to a Formula 1 team. Because pay driving is so closely associated with not only Formula 1, but with these junior series as well, you do see a lot of the difference between the kind of top cars and the top championship contending drivers, the quality that they have. The gap that you see there to the kind of bottom of the field, realistically, the guys that are just paying to be there or the guys that are chiefly there for driver development and just to learn about the series and kind of get experience in a different kind of open wheel car, but aren't really there to compete for the championship in the same way. It can be tricky to understand the like driving standards at sometimes it's not really as clean or engaging or incredibly like impressive. Some of the moves are and some of it is, is really cool, especially Formula 3. It emulates Moto 3 a little bit in their driving style. But at the same time, we don't really know what the point of some of it is for the drivers because they run, you know, Formula 3, it, it's a 30 car field. So if you're going to run 27th all season and, and you're not going to win anything, you're losing money, you're not going to get any prize money back out of it, you have to find some value there. And if it is just valuable as a development series, then that's cool. But you don't really get to claim that you're a high level racing driver just because you're in Formula 3. The reason I kind of bring all that up is to just frame the importance of these championships within the wider context of the international driver market. The structure of a race weekend has changed a little bit in Formula 2 and Formula 3 in between last year and this year's season. What they've done is basically reduced the number of races from 3 to 2. So you used to experience on a Saturday there would be two sprint races. One of them would be normal and then the other one would be a reverse grid of the first sprint race. They would run a reverse grid like that. But what they're doing now instead is they're basically just going to reverse the grid from qualifying. So instead of the finishing order from the first sprint race, they're going to reverse the grid from qualifying. It basically makes it a little bit cleaner, a little bit easier to follow who's leading in the driver standings and why people are in the positions that they're in. Ultimately, winning pole on Friday and the feature race on Sunday, that's going to be the aim for most of the championship contenders. The Saturday sprint race is an opportunity to come from the back or come from a poor qualifying to then state your name as, as you know, a good racecraft driver, a good tactical overtaking driver who's able to maximize a crazy fast-paced race, put some moves on people and show your quality there. So really the kind of format is about drivers being able to show not only that they can perform in qualifying, win a race from the front row of the grid, but also keep their nose clean and keep in the fight and race wheel to wheel consistently with varying qualities of drivers as we go down the Formula 2 and the Formula 3 grid. A championship driver is going to have to race at some point in the season against most of the grid that they're competing against, right? So they're going to have to change their driving style a little bit depending on who they're coming up against. And by encouraging a bit of a mixed up grid format at times and that Saturday sprint race, it encourages the championship leading driver, or at least the driver who's best at qualifying, to still be in the fight and to still show that if they do have that skill to race reel to wheel, 
they're going to get an opportunity to do it. And if they don't have that skill, you know, that's going to be really important to a team that might invest in them in the future. So if you didn't have that Saturday sprint race, you can imagine someone who's really good at qualifying and like starting on the front row can get a good first lap in. There are times where you would be able to run away at the start and a Friday performance in qualifying could be maximized on Sunday and you wouldn't really have to do much overtaking. But the importance of that overtaking is, of course, really, really key once you get to Formula One, that control of the car and that skill. So the teams need to see evidence of that in the junior series. And that's basically the point of the structure change and why the Saturday sprint race still exists. In terms of names to keep an eye out for in the upcoming Formula 2 season, I think the main one you're going to be looking at is Dennis Hauger and whether he can go back-to-back in Formula 3 and Formula 2 championships like Oscar Piastri did. You also have the UNI Virtuosi team. Their driver, Jack Doohan, is going to be a real championship contender. We know Guan Yu Zhou has now graduated from that UNI Virtuosi team to the Alfa Romeo Formula 1 seat. So if one of their drivers can put in a good championship performance over basically two years like Guan Yu Zhou did, get some race wins, get some pole positions and score really significant points. It may be a statement a little bit like Guan Yu Zhou was able to do, where your consistency over the years speaks to your quality as a driver, but at any one time you're not actually able to maximize that championship. What the UNI Virtuosi car gives you is a decent chance at decent points more often than not. And really that's what Guan Yu Zhou was able to take advantage of. If the Doohan name rings a bell, it could be because Jack Doohan's father is Mick Doohan, the five-time 500cc world motorbike champion. Basically, he was the MotoGP champion of his day. And he was an incredible, incredible legend Australian guy, keeping racing in the family, it seems, with his son Jack Doohan, who is a really, really quick driver. Super competitive, a great racing style where he's able to stay out of incidents and really maximise his opportunities. And that's what the UNI Virtuosi team is going to give you. It's going to give you a potential instance to maximize opportunities and if you do that you're going to be in the running for the championship so keep your eye out for jack Doohan. another name to watch is logan Sargent. he's the only american driver in the field and he's coming off the back of a really really great formula 3 career he's graduating from formula 3 now to that formula 2 seat and he's going to be driving for the carlin team alongside honorary dtm champion liam lawson of course anyone that follows the german touring car series the dtm will know that Liam Lawson was effectively robbed of a championship in a much more dramatic, much more provably unfair way um, than Lewis Hamilton was, you know, unable to win the uh, Formula One World Championship in, in whatever perspective you have on that final race. You think that was controversial? I think you better go and have a look at the uh, DCM finale where team orders, team politics, controversial collisions, unfair collisions, bad penalties, bad race direction, bad driving standards, you get all of that in about three corners. So I think the DTM is, uh, you know, got to look in the mirror a little bit about how they're going to change and avoid that in the future, just in the same way Formula One is going to have to. But Liam Lawson was able to really show his quality and his ability to compete in a long-term championship format over different racing tracks, different styles. He's going to be able to compete from the middle of the grid, from the front and from the back. Liam Lawson was a real, real honorary champion, we'll say, in the DTM. I think anyone that watched that series knows that he was the best driver of the field. And we know from Formula One, sometimes the best driver doesn't always win the title, but we definitely saw that happen in uh, Liam Lawson's DTM career. Lawson actually shared that drive in, in DTM with Red Bull's Alex Albon. They're both members of the same driver academy. And of course, we know Alex Albon is driving this year for the Williams Formula One team. It's a brilliant opportunity for him to show his quality. And Liam is really going to have that pressure as one of the next standout Red Bull junior stars alongside Dennis Hauger. You have to perform if you're a Red Bull Junior star, and if you're going to perform, they'll let you through. We know that from Verstappen. We know that from Ricardo, from Sainz. All these different examples of guys that have been able to show their stardom in the Red Bull Junior system and get promoted quickly. So if Liam Lawson can do a similar thing, I think he really, really already did that in the DTM. He's done it a little bit in Formula 2, but if he can win the title this year with the Carlin car, he'll be up there as one of the premier junior drivers on the world market. One more name to keep your eye on in Formula 2 would be Teo Porcher, who won the Monaco feature race last year and is one of the standout youngest drivers on the grid. He's driving with the ART Grand Prix team that George Russell won his Formula 2 title with in 2018, so they're likely to have a pretty competitive car. It's going to be in the mix with the Premers and, and the Carlins and the Virtuosis as being one of the cars that has the potential to be at least high up on the grid because Formula 2 is a championship with lots of DNFs and lots of kind of 
crazy races and scenarios where you could win a race or you could crash out, you know, the driving standards and the kind of level of, of safety cars and, and red flags and stuff, it throws up a lot of uncertainty. So placing in the top 10 and just in the points consistently, the ART cars definitely have the potential to do that. So if Porsche can stay out of those incidents, he's going to really put together a great championship and he's got that raw speed. He was definitely one of the contenders for the Alfa Romeo seat. He's in their driver academy and I think he's also managed by the uh, Alfa Romeo team principal. So if Guan Yu Zhou doesn't really perform to the level that they need, we could see even a mid-season swap for those two. Or we could see Teo Porcher get put in at the end of this year if Guan Yu Zhou is really not able to deliver what the uh, Alfa Romeo team need. We also have the debut of esports champion Ken Bolok Bassi, a Turkish driver who has real experience in real life junior series, but really found his success in esports and F1 esports, the kind of official F1 esports series. Bolok Bassi was really able to deliver results there, and it was those results that got him kind of in the eye of Formula 2 recruitment and the thought that, well, maybe a transfer for an esports driver not only is going to bring with it a lot of press because a lot of people are interested to see the dynamic between a esports driver, the kind of storyline of uh, can they really cut it in high quality real life racing where you have a budget, you have pressure, you have other drivers that have grown up racing in traditional kind of European karting circuit backgrounds. If an esports driver can come in there and at least displace or match them or even beat them in speed, it's a real credit to the series. And even if he can't do it, it's kind of already cool that he's got the opportunity because it paves the way for the future. Even if he can't do it, the premise that it's possible for an F1 esports champion or a you know successful esports driver, whatever category, the transfer between esports and real world racing, it's important and it's a real big storyline as we look to the future of motorsports in general. So keep your eye out for Kem and keep your eye out to see how his season really develops because it could be quite disappointing if he's really not able to find his way or get to grips with the car or understand what he needs to do to win. But it could be pretty bloody heroic if he's able to show how that car can be driven in a new way or if he can take some of his experience from the virtual track, bring it onto the real one and beat some guys out of the way. You know, I think it'd be a great, great story. In terms of Formula 3, a big name to watch is going to be Arthur Leclerc, the younger brother of Formula 1 driver Charles Leclerc. He's driving with the Prema team, the same team that Dennis Hauger won the championship with last year. They run cars both in Formula 2 and Formula 3, so they're kind of a big overarching system over junior FIA motorsport. And both their Formula 2 and their Formula 3 teams are extremely likely to be either in championship contention, if not definitely going to be the championship winning cars. So we've got Arthur Leclerc in one of those. And we've got Red Bull Junior driver Jack Crawford in the other Prima car, which is another example of, like Dennis Hauger, that partnership between Red Bull and the Ferrari Driver Academy, or at least the Prima team that is most traditionally associated with the Ferrari Driver Academy, like they were when they won the Formula 2 title with Mick Schumacher, right? Now, we know Mick Schumacher isn't presently driving a Ferrari car, but he's driving a car with a Ferrari engine. He's in that Ferrari Driver Academy, like Robert Schwarzman was, like Charles Leclerc still is like Charles Leclerc's little brother is, right? So that kind of partnership there, Prima and Ferrari is kind of decreasing a little bit because it seems like these Red Bull guys are really coming in, winning in the Prima cars, which might be messing up that partnership a little bit. But there's going to be a real dynamic there, I think, between Crawford and, and Leclerc in Formula 3 this season to see which one of them is going to be able to maximize opportunity when they know that they're in that Prima seat. That's kind of the seat that everyone wants to be in, right? It's a little bit like the Mercedes of yesteryear in 2015-2016 Formula 1. It's a little bit like that with the Prima cars in the Junior Series at the moment. Maybe not to the exact same extent, but it's a similar kind of pattern. Two British drivers that it's definitely worth keeping an eye out for this Formula 3 season are Ollie Behrman and Zach O'Sullivan. Ollie Behrman won the German and the Italian Formula 4 championships last year in the same season he was competing in both. The schedule of them kind of allowed that. They weren't year-long seasons, but to win both in the same year was really, really incredible. And it caught the eye of the Ferrari Driver Academy. It caught the eye of the Prima Formula 3 team. So the pressure is going to be off of him a little bit because he's already with that successful team. And it's more going to be looking to Arthur Leclerc to kind of deliver that title because he's got the namesake. He's got the experience. For British motorsport, it's really key for Behrman to be able to take that seat at the kind of top Formula 3 team alongside two other real championship contenders. 
and make the statement that, you know, British Motorsports is here to stay in that junior generation. We have, of course, the Leclerc family looking extremely strong there and drivers from really all around the world in these series. But with Behrman, we've got a British driver to cheer for and a British driver that might be in title contention alongside the Lando Norrises and the George Russells and the Alex Albons that we've seen come out of the FIA Junior Series before. Zach O'Sullivan is going to be driving with the Carlin Formula 3 team. So we spoke a little bit about earlier how Logan Sargent, the American driver, is going to be driving in the Formula 2 team for Carlin. Zach O'Sullivan, the British Williams Academy driver, is going to be driving in their Formula 3 team. And that's a team that is probably going to be pretty competitive. It's not going to be up there with the Premers in both Formula 2 and Formula 3. Carlin is pretty consistent, pretty good. Lando Norris was a Carlin driver in his time, but they're not always likely to be winning every qualifying and putting them in great positions in the feature race. Something like the sprint race, the Saturday race, is going to offer a huge amount of opportunity to drivers like Zach and especially drivers like Ollie too, where they might have that great equipment. They're going to put in some kind of good performance in qualifying, but it's not going to be pole position. It's going to give them a chance to still get in the fight and to develop their wheel-to-wheel racing skills, which is really what we want to see. So keep your eye out for those two guys as well. In other racing news, we had a NASCAR race last weekend that was won by driver Chase Briscoe, and he took his first ever win in the NASCAR Cup Series. Really emotional moment for him to write his name into the history books as the 200th different winner in the history of the NASCAR Cup Series. So to get that record down and to put your name in the history books as a winner of a NASCAR Cup Series race was really, really emotional for him. And I think a pretty impressive victory as well. It looked like he really was able to maximize the pace in the car. It looked like it was the Chevrolets and the Fords that had the kind of best running order and the best technical package delivered at the Phoenix circuit. Really suited the style of racing they had there. I'd recommend anyone to go check out the uh, track limit situation they were running there because the NASCAR track, they run this kind of line that's called um, like the apron, which is the kind of line that goes around the bottom of the uh, banking where the drivers are able to cut across the line as much as they want. The line is really only there to show where the banking starts so it's not really the same as formula one where crossing over the line is a penalty and because of that at the start of this race and of course all the subsequent yellow flag restarts there was no prevention of anyone dropping down beyond the apron and running on the little flat section of the infield there there was a lot of room there now at some tracks that's covered up with grass the whole way and you wouldn't be able to do that but it was a kind of unique feature of that phoenix track where up to a certain point, it was at least a little bit faster or not that much slower to run on that bottom part of the track. And then in turn, you were able to avoid incidents. But then once everyone starts doing it, you almost get more incidents because everyone's trying to rush to get away from the other incidents. So it's a two-way field there. And, you know, it looked a bit silly at times, obviously, when you've got drivers shooting off what looks like the bottom of the track, when actually the rule doesn't define it as the bottom of the track. But to everyone else, it looks like the bottom of the track, right? It looked a little bit silly, but IndyCar does the same thing with their track limits in that it's really just, if you're going quickly, you can go wherever you want. It doesn't matter what track you're using to go quickly. All we want to see is the car go as quickly as possible, and you can use whatever bit of track you want to to make that happen. Formula One's very different to that, and they have a much more rigid perspective on it. We know, of course, from even the 2021 Bahrain Grand Prix, track limits have been a really key determining factor in a lot of Formula One races, and they've played a massive role not only in the controversies that kind of Red Bull and Mercedes have lobbied against each other, but also just the general discussion alongside like tyre temperatures and aerodynamics, whatever. Track limits are very much in the conversation every Formula One weekend, and they're just not really in NASCAR, and we saw kind of the funny side of that, I guess. It wasn't really used by anyone to win the race overall. It was Kyle Busch that was doing it most and using it to his advantage, but it didn't pay off in the long run overall as a strategy that was going to let you take the lead, but it was probably going to help you avoid some crashes and gain some quick positions on the restarts. And a little bit of cheekiness goes a long way in NASCAR sometimes. So we've got a race in Atlanta coming up this weekend for NASCAR, and we also have the Texas Motor Speedway IndyCar Grand Prix this weekend, as I spoke a little bit about that on last week's episode, how it's going to be really, really engaging and exciting to see the uh, rookie drivers taking on the over race for the first time, with one of those being, of course, our man, Roman Grosjean, most popular driver on the IndyCar grid at the moment. Seeing him take on that oval for the first time alongside Jimmy Johnson, of course, NASCAR champion, going to be doing the same thing. 
going to be a great challenge. And if one of the old masters of IndyCar, the old masters of the oval style of racing there, can show their quality at the Texas Grand Prix, then who isn't going to love that? And maybe it could be Alex Pelot. We saw last year, Pelot was the one that was really, really brilliant at maximizing opportunities at every different style of track. So with the first oval race of the season, it's an opportunity for him and his championship defense to establish dominance there and to show, look, I'm the man to be at this track, right? So I think Polo could be in with a chance for the victory there, and I'm really looking forward to see how that race turns out. We also have MotoGP returning this weekend with the new track in Indonesia, one of the most beautiful tracks I've ever seen. I mean, it really reminds me of the Phillip Island circuit in Australia, where you get that atmosphere that's created being right by the water, those beautiful wide shots from the helicopter and the drones following the racing. Doing racing in, in a beautiful location, it really kind of just adds to the overall spectacle of it. Of course, it's really on the broadcast where it comes to life and you understand how they've built the track and the design of it and every bit of inspiration that's got into making it a great venue for racing. I'm really excited to see whether it lives up to the hype and to see some racing around that beautiful track. Hopefully we see some beautiful racing, right? With Enea Bastianini's dramatic win in Qatar, that context of what the championship looks like at the moment in MotoGP is really, really interesting. It's definitely very, very far from what a lot of people's preseason predictions would have been. I think Peko Bagnaia really is kind of the underperforming driver. Of course, him and Fabio Quattararo were really the leaders at the end of last year with Marquez still recovering from his injury and the Honda bike not quite being there. It looked like going into 2022 that it was going to be, you know, a Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen-esque fight between Quattararo and, uh, and Bagnaia for the championship in MotoGP, but that's really not what we've got. We've got Anea Bastianini, Moto2 star, and of course, deliverer of the emotional, emotional victory for the Grassini team that I spoke a little bit about last week. He's at the top of the championship at the moment, but he's doing it in a bike that isn't the fastest bike, so there's going to be a bit of a mix-up at the Indonesia track. It's a little bit kind of, I think, similar to Qatar in that traditionally, I would say it looks to favor a lot of medium speed corners, ergo a lot of Yamaha style corners. But we know that the Yamaha this year is not up to the scratcher that's been in the previous seasons. The Ducatis are, of course, still demons in a straight line, and they're going to do anyone over any kind of elongated period of straight track. But it feels like at the moment, the Hondas and the Suzukis and the KTMs as well, really. I mean, the performance from Brad Binder was absolutely incredible. Not only his skill in keeping up with the Hondas, but his racecraft to not overuse his tires and stay in the fight till the end and keep a fast bike beneath you till the end of the race, keep it on the track and keep some speed in there to defend late on. That skill and that development speaks to a great step of uh, rider development there for Brad Binder. And if that KTM package can stand up to that quality of Binder, he can maximize opportunities on that. He could be in the fight for the win in uh, Indonesia this weekend. So I think it's either going to be, you know, a Suzuki or a KTM or a Honda or a Yamaha or a Ducati or an Aprilia, right? That, that's basically the only prediction I can make. Someone's probably going to win the race, but uh, I have absolutely no idea who it's going to be. And I think that's what's so brilliant about MotoGP that it kind of emulates its junior series in that sense that it is really genuinely unpredictable. It could be Marc Marquez. We've seen, you know, the last kind of maybe five years ago or so in MotoGP, it was a little bit of the Marquez show because he was just genuinely that good, that aggressive, that dominant on such a brilliant bike that it felt like no one really knew how to beat him. But now we know exactly how to beat him. You put him in a situation where he's on a bike that isn't exactly tailored to him in the same way that it was before when he's given a little bit of play with the development of the bike to his teammate and kind of balanced it out a bit there. And it's not going to be so specialized to his riding style. He's going to have to change and adapt a little bit there. Of course, his injury is still playing a role, but it feels like his recovery from that is in a really, really good place. But he's got this kind of young fight with Juan Mir, with Fabio Quattararo, with Bagnaia. And Jack Miller as well, of course. Miller's not really a young rider in the same sense, but he's bloody aggressive and he'll go for it. And he's on a Ducati, so he's going to be in the fight too. Anything can happen, and it often does, right? I think that's how we have to look at the uh, upcoming MotoGP race, and I'm really excited to see what does happen. Hope you'll be tuning in for that too, alongside Formula One Bahrain, alongside IndyCar, and alongside NASCAR. And finally, one more event that we've got coming up in the kind of global motorsport calendar is the Sebring 8-hour or 1,000 miles of Sebring. The World Endurance Championship over there in America is 
getting started and showing that their style of racing is ready to compete on that global scale with the rest of international motorsport. Friend of the show, Jamie Price, is going to be at Sebring. If you remember our interview, we actually spoke a little bit about the Sebring track in the context of uh, it being incredibly boring to take photographs of. So Jamie's working there this weekend. I would really recommend giving him a follow on Instagram or TikTok or whatever you want to look at because his work truly is, is really, really brilliant. And the way in which he's able to find art and find dramatic moments, even in the boring environment of the kind of Sebring like airfield, I guess, is really what it is. It's a track where you're not really faced with the same kind of beautiful architecture opposite end of the spectrum, if, if you like, from the uh, MotoGP Indonesia track that's in a really, really beautiful environment. Sebring track's right at the opposite of that, but, you know, we'll get some beautiful racing there too. And I think World Endurance Championship, you know, racing at night, four different kinds of car on the same track together, all racing against each other with no blue flags and position changes all the way through, fuel strategy, tyre strategy. World Endurance is another brilliant, brilliant series. And we spoke a little bit about with uh, with Russell as well, Russell Howard, the uh, motorsport jobs expert, on how endurance racing differs from traditional Grand Prix racing and how the opportunities in endurance racing are really emerging, especially in America. Their kind of fandom of endurance racing and long format racing like we see in NASCAR, but like we see in a lot of other categories. Really, really brilliant to see how the World Endurance Championship is going to evolve in 2022. And uh, good luck to Jamie. I'm sure he'll be having an incredibly busy weekend, but an incredibly rewarding one too. But I think with that, then we can wrap up the episode for this week and look forward to the Formula One Bahrain Grand Prix. Formula One is finally back. We've watched our Netflix shows. We've caught up on all the off-season drama, all the drama from testing, all the little bits of technical regulations and everything, every dollar, every bit of time, everything that's gone into producing these 2022 Formula One cars. We're going to finally see them racing this Sunday. I can't wait. I'm sure you can't too. So I'll get this show wrapped up. I'll let the outro song play and I'll be back next week to wrap it all up.